some of you are going to be familiar with this opening illustration from if you've been to some of our Monday night classes. Um, but I don't know if I have found an illustration or a poem in all the world, really, that better brings out the depths of man's problem in this world. Okay, so I just want to read it. It's just a few short lines here. Let me read it to you. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. What were you expecting for me to read? Um, there are some great theological truths in this poem. Okay. Let me take you back to my childhood, and I, I had a, a, a Humpty Dumpty book. Okay. Uh, it was a short book, obviously. Um, but let me take you to page one of my, my Humpty Dumpty book. Okay. Uh, Humpty Dumpty uh, was an egg sitting on a wall, which is interesting, right? Because uh, there's nothing in this poem that says he's an egg, but somehow uh, he's an egg. Now, someone in between services here after I preached first service said to me that um, Humpty Dumpty's really named for a cannon. Has anybody heard this before? I hadn't heard this before. Um, but he said Mother Goose got a hold of this thing and turned it into an egg. So um, Humpty Dumpty's an egg, apparently. Um, we don't know why he's an egg. I, I'm guessing an illustrator, as he was illustrating the story, thought, well, the end of this is pretty gross. I better make him an egg, you know, as, as, he, as he's writing down uh, the, the drawing there. Um, but he, he's an egg, and, and uh, you know, as a child, it makes you wonder, um, why does an egg have arms and legs? Um, why are you on a wall? Probably a bad place for an egg to hang out. If you're thinking ahead, there should be some pillows, some mattresses underneath you, because you are an egg. You should know this by now. Um, so some, some questions maybe I had as a, as a child. I'm getting a little window to my soul here, aren't you? Uh, page two has Humpty Dumpty um, leaning off to the side, a frazzled look on his face. There's no necessary reason that we're given for why he's starting to all of a sudden wobble uh, on the top of this wall, but he has a panicked look on his face. Page one, he wasn't really sure that, that he was in peril at all, but on page two, it's very clear something's going wrong here. And uh, he, he's clearly uh, in some trouble here. Um, now, page three, uh, this is where you get kind of the, to the gross part of the story. Um, he's fallen off the wall. Um, he is broken in half. His innards are spilled out onto the sidewalk. Um, getting kind of gross here. Um, in the background, in, in my book, there were humans coming from a castle behind Humpty Dumpty. Not eggs for some reason. Now we're into humans. On horses, uh, riding out to help put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Um, who knew that falling off a wall brought such noble people to come help you? Um, who knew that noble people know how to put eggs back together? But somehow, that was the purpose here of coming out of the castle to uh, take care of, of Humpty Dumpty here. Then we get to page four, which is really the quite depressing end of the story. Um, the horses and the horsemen are now turned tail going uh, back to the castle um, Humpty's left for dead there, still broken, now going out into the street with his yoke and guts and to be trampled underfoot by future horsemen and other people. Um, so uh, this is a great children's story, isn't it, that we read to our kids? What a great story. Um, well, why do I go forward with this illustration? Why is this such a great illustration uh, for us for today as we approach uh, Romans 5? Um, well, we, like Humpty Dumpty, and when I say we, I mean all of mankind, um, are just like him. We have had a great fall. Um, we are, are broken people. Um, one needs only to look at the headlines on 
line or in the newspaper and to, to see that we're a broken people. And, and as I, I typed this into my notes, I actually thought, well, I better illustrate this. So I went right to a, a news website and I saw stocks dropping. I saw murder trials. I saw government bailouts. I saw outbreaks of illness uh, headlined on, on two websites there. So clearly show that man has had a great fall. This fall came from Adam in the Garden of Eden. And the fall is from an intimate and close relationship with God. Now, like Humpty Dumpty, we have tried to put ourselves back together again in, in many different, different ways. Um, maybe blaming others for our brokenness, um, as, as Adam did in the garden. Um, maybe we tried to outdo our, our bad with our, our good to try to kind of make up for our, our brokenness. But, but like Humpty Dumpty, no human effort, all the king's horses and all the king's men could not put us back together again. So, do we find ourselves hopeless in our state? Do we find that paradise is lost forever? Um, do we, like Humpty Dumpty, stay in this broken state? Well, praise be to God, no. Right? There's a page five to our story where Humpty's ended at page four. Christ has brought us into a new realm of grace. And Paul teaches the Romans here that about this era in which we were before Christ and the era in which we are in now. And, and so let, let's open up to Romans 5, um, starting in verse 12, um, to see how we became broken and, and how we were put back together again. So why don't you stand with me in honor of God's word, and, and we'll read uh, Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking commands, as did Adam, who was a pattern for the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespasses of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many. Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if, by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as though the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through the righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You may be seated. May God bless us as we study his word today. Um, you know, today I want to explore what Paul has been helping the Romans understand all through Romans, or leading up to Romans 5, and, and in this passage today, really Paul's in, in treating the Romans to understand the gift, to understand the full impact of, of, of the wake of Adam's sin 
and the full impact of the great gift of Jesus Christ. So let's go to the first area that Paul's helping the Romans to understand here first. And that's the wake of Adam's sin in verses 12 through 14. It shows us really the ripple effect of, of, the, of sin. Now in, in verse 12, we have a therefore at the beginning of our passage here. So we all know that when you see a therefore, you ask yourself, what's the therefore, therefore? Well, Paul has spent you know, Romans 1.1 1, 1, all the way up to Romans 5.11 talking about sin and death and 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 justification through, through Jesus Christ. And so he is kind of continuing to, to drill in this point of the effects of sin and the effect of Christ. And so in light of all these things I've said, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, verse 12, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. So begs the question, who is this man? Adam, right? Adam from the Garden of Eden in Genesis. In Genesis 2.17, we see Adam getting a command from the Lord. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Genesis 2.17. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In Genesis 3, then, God holds Adam accountable for breaking this rule. Adam rejects God's authority doesn't protect his wife from evil, then passively stands by as his wife eats of the fruit and then he eats of the fruit uh, himself. So sin entered in the world through one man. So picture the Garden of Eden here. Adam broke the one rule, the one rule he had to break, and sin entered in. Sin entered into the world through one man. As one commentator says, when Adam disobeyed God, Sin entered into his life and generated a constitutional change in his nature from innocence to sinfulness, an innate sinfulness that would be transmitted to every one of his descendants. So in verse 12 here, when it says sin entered, uh, it's not talking about a bunch of unrighteous actions or thoughts or, or words that he was saying, but, but more an inherent propensity to sin, a sin nature. He sinned as our, as mankind's representative. So mankind's, all of our inherent being changed. Okay? So the wake of Adam's sin continues then, as it says next, death comes through sin or death through sin. Right? So not only did our inherent sin nature develop as a result of Adam's sin, but also death. Death came through sin. Adam was not created as a mortal being. He was to live forever in fellowship with God. And he was warned of the consequences if he ate, that he would die. But when he ate, death spread to every human being, all because of one man. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says, For as in Adam all die. The wake continues, as Paul writes. Death came to all men because all sinned. Now, you might say, wait a minute, because all sinned, hang on, I wasn't there in the Garden of Eden, I wasn't participating with that, but remember what we've said, all sin and have participated in that first sin, and we're guilty of that sin. And even later in verse 19, through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, right? So, John MacArthur writes this, he says, a person does not become a sinner 
by committing sins. Okay, do you follow that? A person doesn't become a sinner by committing sins, but rather commits sins because he is by nature a sinner. So he gives some illustrations of this. Uh, you're right, he says, a person does not become a liar when he tells a lie. He tells a lie because his heart is already deceitful. A person does not become a murderer when he kills someone. He kills because his heart is already murderous. Does that make sense? Jesus says, out of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? So because of Adam's sin, mankind experiences this this spiritual death. Ephesians 2, you are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The wake of Adam's sin is staggering, isn't it? It should be staggering. It brings spiritual death. It brings eternal death. It brings physical death. One commentator wrote this. When when Adam sinned, the race sinned. (laughs) The race was in him. To put it boldly, Adam was the race. What he did, his descendants who were still in him did also. The wake of Adam's sin continues in verses 13 and 14. Look back there. Paul explains that that even though the law, law was given after Adam... All were still affected by Adam's sin. So think of this as a timeline here. Adam's sin, you see the beginning of verse 13 there, sin was in the world, and you have the law given. And you have this time period in between, right, between the Garden of Eden and the law given to to Moses, all right? In this time period, look at the beginning of verse 14, death reigned during that time. Um, Sin was not taken to account what does that mean? Wait, I thought we just said death reigned. We were all a part of that sin. The race sinned. We were in Adam. What's it mean is it wasn't taken into account? It's, it's complicated, but I think it's as simple as this. We're not taken into account. The sin was not taken into account because it was not explicitly identified without the law. The law shone upon ourselves and identified more sin in our lives, gave gave more of a structure to, to identifying that sin. It's explicitly identified there. We'll talk about that more as we get into the latter part of this passage. But, but these people in between that were post-Adam and, and pre-Moses were still stained with sin. Death still reigned there. Now, as you think about Adam, I think about um, a, a person standing on a hillside with a, a dam with cracks in it about to wash over the village behind him and he's got his finger in the dam pressing against that hole that crack trying to keep the water from washing out the village below that's adam adam had his finger pressed against the dam holding back the effect of sin from all of us and he let go and the sin effect washed over all of us all of us affected by sin. Now, some might cry out to this and say, that's not fair. Hang on. There's a couple reasons why that's not fair. First of all, um, God desired a relationship with Adam and Eve, and and Adam's the one that blew it here. Um, But didn't God kind of tempt him a little bit? You know, here's this tree. Probably looked like a nice tree. Don't touch it. Don't eat of that fruit. It's not fair that God would, would tempt Adam in that way. 
think of it this way. Think of a single person in our church approaching another single person in our church out here in the hallway. They approach that person and they say, hello, you are going to love me. I have arranged it. Try that, guys, later. Try that. See how that works for you. God, in his sovereign work in our lives, allows us to be respond to this offer of salvation. Right? He didn't make us robots that we had to do this, but he allows us to respond to that. Um, so again, you might say, but this, this isn't fair. Um, let's think about this. God's wisdom is all over this, what happened in the garden, because the reality is we really don't want what's fair. Do you really want what's fair in life? Because what's fair is for Ben Davidson to spend eternity separated from God. That's what's fair. That's what I deserve for my sin, is eternal separation from God in hell. It's good that we're connected to Adam. It's good that we're connected spiritually. It's good that we're connected physically to Adam. But because, because of this, we're connected to the first Adam we can be connected to the second Adam who brings us forgiveness. So, kids, next time you rebuke your parents for dealing with you in a certain way and say, that's not fair, or if you're in a college class right now and the professor gives a certain assignment and you say, well, that's not fair, remember, do you, do you really want life to be fair? Your boss gives you an assignment and doesn't give the other person as hard an assignment? That's not fair. We don't want life to be fair. We don't want life to be fair. Which leads us to our second area Paul is helping us understand. The second theme here is, is understanding the differences between Adam and Christ. Understanding the differences between Adam and Christ in verses 15 through 17. Okay, so let's go through each verse here methodically. And um, let's talk about the differences that we see here. The first difference in verse 15 is the difference in the character between the trespass, the sin, and, and the gift, the grace through Jesus. Okay? So the first difference in verse 15 is a difference in character between the trespass and the gift. Look at verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass. Okay, on the one side, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, look at the other side, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? So on the one side, we have trespass brings a deserved death. On the other side, the gift brings an undeserved grace. Okay, the, the second difference we see here then. The second difference that Paul points out in verse 16 is the difference between the starting points of the trespass and the gift. A difference in the starting points. Look at verse 16. Uh, again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The, on the one side, the judgment followed one sin. And brought condemnation. On the other side, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. So there's a difference in the starting points here. Um, after one sin was brought judgment and condemnation. After the many sins, different starting point here, the gift brought justification. Okay, so that's the second difference we see here, the difference in starting points. Difference in character, starting points. The third difference is the difference in, in consequences. And we see that all throughout here in Genesis and um, Romans 5, um, 15 and 16. The, the third difference is the difference in the consequences of the sin. The sin brings death 
and the gift brings life. Now we see this death and life interplay in verse 17 as well, where we see kind of a summary of these differences together. Let's look at verse, verse 17. For if, on the one side, by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, on the other side, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So on the one side, the, the trespass of one man, death reigned. Now it would make sense to say, okay, now here life reigns. On the one side, death reigns if we keep it equal, keep it fair. <laughs> life reigns. But you notice that's not what it says. The trespass of one man, death reigned. Well, I hope we get this. Stay with me. Receive Christ, we reign. We reign in life through Christ. The Bishop's Gates commentary says this. The striking difference here is that whereas death reigned through Adam, okay, it is not life that reigns, as one might expect, but people who will reign. Before, we were subjects to the rule of death. We were subjects to the rule of death. But now it is we who will triumph forever through Christ. So, we're not just restored to God. And I use that word just kind of in jest there a little bit. We're, we're justified, right? We're, we're declared innocent as we place our faith in Jesus Christ, as, as we look at the cross as sufficient to pay the penalty for my sin. I am considered innocent before God. That alone is enough grace, right? That alone is praise the Lord for his grace. He's justified me. God looks at me and he sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. Why? Why, oh why, would I be shown such undeserved grace? That's not all that grace does. That's not all that grace does. He gives us abundant life. We reign in life. Jesus said, I have come that might have life and have it abundantly. Life abounds to all men who are united in Christ. 1 Corinthians 5.22, the second half of that verse says, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. We can defy death. We can echo the scriptures and say, Death, where is your victory? Job says, I know my Redeemer lives, and we live because of him. The differences between sin and grace are expressed very well in the hymn, Grace Greater Than My Sin, um, written in 1910. Okay, can I, can I just read this to you? Many of you will know this song. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt, Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb is spilt. On the one side, sin and despair like the sea waves cold, threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, brighter than snow you may be today. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe. You that are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Could we, could we just sing that together? 
Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Thank you. This leads us to the third area that Paul is helping the Romans understand, that he's helping us to understand. The similarity between Adam and Christ. We've explored the differences between Adam and Christ. And now Paul says that there's something that's similar between Adam and Christ as well. Look at verse 18. Consequently, just as the result of one man's of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. So, one trespass meant condemnation for all. One trespass. Similarly, one act of righteousness means justification that brings life for all men. So the disobedience of, of one man made many sinners. The obedience of one man many will be made righteous. So we see the similarities here. One pastor writes of this, the, the guilt of Adam's disobedience was imputed into all his descendants, imputed, put into all of his descendants. Christ's obedience caused those who believe in him to be made righteous in God's sight. The consequences of his perfect obedience and unblemished, impeccable righteousness is imputed to their account, making them legally righteous. So the disobedience of the one man made many sinners. The obedience of one man, many will be made righteous. Christ's act of obedience saves us completely from the old hymn. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. It is well, it is well with my soul. This one act of righteousness. Which leads us to the fourth area Paul was helping us to understand. Understand the relationship between the law and grace. Now we touched on this earlier, didn't we? But now Paul unfolds a little bit more the relationship between law and grace. Verse 20. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. Boy, that's kind of hard, isn't it? The law was added so the trespass might increase. But, but where sin increased, here's the good news, right? But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life to Jesus Christ our Lord. I hope your blood's moving a little faster now. Here we see Paul going back to talking about the law, right, and how it exposed sin for what it is. So we're now able to see more sin in our daily lives than before the law. Boy, that sounds harsh. Does that sound harsh to you? Wait for it. Think, think about this. As the spotlight is shined upon our sin, we see grace magnified. Think of it as yourself being in a, a completely pitch black room, okay? No windows at all. Completely black room. But far up in the distance, you think, after being driven crazy by the, the, the darkness of the room, you think you see a, a light. And so you start walking towards it. 
and you start walking faster and you find yourself running towards this light. It may be a door that's just cracked a little bit and the little light is pouring in. And, and as you get to that light, that, that's what it is. It's a door that just has this little crack in it and you can see the light coming in. Well, what's your response? You want to fling open that door, right? And so you grab that knob and you whip the door open and light pours upon you, exposing you for everything that you are. No wrinkle hidden. You are who you are. That's the law, exposing us for who we are. But then we see the giver of that light, the giver of that law. And we see the radiance that pours out from him that shines that light upon us. And we are mesmerized. And we see the mercy that comes from him to help us to see our sin. So we can see the far reaches of his grace. So as we think about the law, we can picture the law kind of holding a magnifying glass over this little word down here called grace. But as we look through the glass, grace explodes. It's magnified. It's made rich in our lives as we see our sin. So there are potentially three types of people in this room that I want to talk to. Um, and you can decide on your own which, which person you think you are as I, as I go through these three different people. The first person is this. There's a person that would say, I'm united with Adam. I kind of understand that, that I don't have to look far to see that I have this sin nature and it kind of bubbles itself out through what I say and what I think and what I do. Um, But I am not united with Christ. I'm not united with the second, second Adam. Let me tell you, if that's true of you, today can be the day of your salvation. Today can be the day. This moment can be the moment in which you are united with Christ. Simply understanding that because of that sin nature, you're in need of someone to pay the penalty of death for you. And you can, by faith, trust in Christ that his death on the cross was sufficient to pay that penalty and repent of your sin and turn away from your sin and walk towards God. Believing that there is nothing you can add to your salvation. No amount of money that you put in that offering plate or didn't put in that offering plate, as we went by earlier. No amount of kind words that you said or didn't say to the people that you came here today with or people you've seen since you've been here. Your attendance here has nothing to do with your salvation. If you understand that and you believe that Christ's death was sufficient to pay your death and repent of your sin and turn away It's the same coin, just a different side to the coin. Repentance and faith. Today can be the day of your salvation. You can enjoy a relationship with God today and be in fellowship with him. That's the first person I want to talk to. Now, if that's you, I'd love to talk with you after the service. There are many people in this room that understand the truths that I just shared, probably sitting next to you, and they would love to share with that, that with you more. Let me talk to the second person here. The second person would say this. I'm united with Adam, and I've united myself with Christ. But the reality is this person has not really made an authentic decision for Christ. Now, um, so I don't sound harsh here. I'm going to read what John Piper says about this person. Okay, so you can not like him instead of not liking me. All right. Uh, This is kind of long. It's what I have highlighted in blue here if you're close enough. So it's going to take a while to get through this, but stay with me here. Okay? Stay with me. John Piper writes this. 
you might want God's forgiveness because you are so miserable with guilt feelings. You just want some relief. You can believe that he forgives you, then you will have some relief, but not necessarily salvation. If you only want forgiveness because of emotional relief, you won't have God's forgiveness. He does not give it to those who use it only to get his gifts and not himself. Or you might want to be healed from a disease or get a good job or, or find a spouse. And then you hear that God can help you get these things, but that first your sins would have to be forgiven. So someone tells you to believe that Christ died for your sins, that if you believe this, your sins will be forgiven. So you might believe it in order to remove the obstacle to health, the job, the spouse. Is that gospel salvation? I don't think so, Piper writes. In other words, it matters what you're hoping for through forgiveness. It matters why you want forgiveness. Forgiveness, Piper continues, is precious for one final reason. It enables you to enjoy fellowship with God. If you don't want forgiveness for that reason, you won't have it at all. Now this is, this is tough right here. Ready for this? God will not be used as currency for the purchase of idols. We ask, why do we want eternal life? One might say, because hell is the alternative, and that's painful. In this aim, one thing is missing, God. The saving motive for wanting eternal life is given in John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. If we do not want eternal life because it means joy in God, then we won't have eternal life, end quote. The second person says, I'm united with Adam, and I'm united with Christ so that I can get what I want, so I can get my get-out-of-hell free card. But this person has not examined themselves, as Paul writes in Corinthians, to examine themselves, to see if they're in the faith, to see if the reason why they are looking for forgiveness for their sins because I want to enjoy God. I want to have a relationship with God for eternity and find joy in following him and obedience and loving him and experiencing his love. That is our motivation for our salvation. So I implore, if that's describing you, would you consider afresh receiving Christ as your Lord and Savior? That's the second person. Let me talk to the third person in this room. The third person has made this decision to receive Christ in their lives in order to know the Father and to enjoy Him. And so it's this person that really this whole sermon is for, right? Because we have this theology now, Romans 5, 12 through 21, so what? Okay, I understand it. Do we just go home and go, huh, neat. I understand Romans 5, 12 through 21. Well, I, I think it's, it's right for us, if we're looking to, to apply Romans 5, 12 through 21, that we look at Romans 12, 1 and 2. Can you just turn there with me for a minute? Romans 12, 1 and 2. Why am I having us turn there? Romans 1 through 11 really is Paul beating this drum of death reigning, sin being a reality, Christ coming to pay for that sin, being sufficient to cover that sin. We can be justified freely through Christ's death on the cross. And now, in verse 
1 of chapter 12, this is the application of all that theology of Romans 1 through 11. Romans 12, 1 and on is the application of the first 11 chapters. And so we see the therefore there again. You see that in, in Romans 12, 1, right? We see a, a therefore in there. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, I appeal to you. And in light of these 11 chapters, in light of even chapter 5, 12 through 21, in light of all this thing, all these things that I'm hoping you understand, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So therefore, in light of understanding the gift, therefore, live as a living sacrifice to God. That is a radical request, isn't it? When I preached on Romans 12 many moons ago, I, I said that. I said, this is a radical request, Live, a living sacrifice, surrendering all to him. God, because of your grace magnified in my life, I will do whatever you ask. That is a radical request. But if we understand chapters 1 through 11, in which this passage we're talking about today is in, if we understand that rightly, it is a reasonable request, isn't it? It's a, as some kids would say, duh. Why wouldn't I live as a living sacrifice? What has Christ done for you, believer? What has he done for us? Paul says, I just spent 11 chapters imploring you, teaching you, helping you understand the gift. So now we get the joy. Live out the gift. Live out the gift for God's glory. Therefore, by the mercies of God, he even is going to give you the grace to live out the gift. That grace doesn't just start with, just end with the justification, right? By the mercies of God, the grace keeps flowing. The grace keeps flowing. Live out the gift. What an amazing God we have. So we ask ourselves, if, this is tr- if you're this third person that says, yes, I have trusted in Christ so I can know the joy of knowing who God is, in light of this new era in which I stand, I will present myself as a living sacrifice. Are we doing that? Are we allowing the world to drag us away from being that living sacrifice? Am I being transformed daily into his likeness? What are the influences that you and I have allowed into our lives that keep us from being that living sacrifice? Because if we're allowing the world in, what muck are we allowing into our lives that would keep us from really understanding the gospel afresh? But we allow, I allow, can I say we? We allow this worldly thinking, sinful behavior, the influence of the evil one into our lives, thinking, yeah, I'm going to find joy here. This is where life is. I'm going to find incredible joy by playing around with the world, allowing my flesh to be in charge. That's where I'll find life. And meanwhile, Jesus says, Romans 12, living sacrifice. You'll find so much more joy in following me. That is where we'll find joy. I have come to bring you life and life abundantly. And all God's people should say, we should say it louder. All God's people should say, right? Because we have found the joy that is in knowing Christ. And so, believer, that third person, you're a testimony to that first person. You're a testimony to that second person, aren't you? We are a testimony to a dying world that there is no joy in living the way they are. We're a testimony to a dying world of the grace that is sufficiently covered 
my sin and covered your sin. So might a response and application be to share of the glorious gospel with those who are dying. To share that there is a God who is merciful and is holy. But man is sinful and rejected God. And Jesus came to pay that penalty that we deserve for our rejecting of God. And we can respond two sides of the same coin in repentance and faith to him. God, man, Jesus, response. Maybe we proclaim that. Charles Spurgeon is quoted as saying, if you think, well, I'm not really that good at that, Ben. I'm not really gifted at that. I'm not really good at expressing my faith to other people. Hear your encouragement from Charles Spurgeon here, the preacher of preachers. The power that is in the gospel does not lie in the eloquence of the preacher. You're good. All right? You're good. The power of the gospel does not rely in your eloquence. Otherwise, men would be men would be the converter of souls. Nor does it lie in the preacher's learning. Otherwise, it would consist of the wisdom of men. We might preach until our tongues rotted, till we would exhaust our lungs and die, but never a soul would be converted unless the Holy Spirit be with the word of God to give it the power to convert the soul. Christ has brought us into a new realm of grace. And we are radically changed. And he has given us a reasonable command to be a living sacrifice for him. So, are we, like Humpty Dumpty, destined to stay in our broken state? Well, we're just like him, right? Page one, in peril, but not even realizing it, sitting on the wall. Page two, we see that we're in peril. We see that we're united with Adam. Page three, we see the far-reaching effects of us being in the wake of Adam's sin. And the world tries to help us repair that brokenness. We try to repair our own brokenness. Page four, Humpty's left for dead. As the world gives up, we can't help this guy. But unlike Humpty Dumpty, Page five, Jesus is sent for God's glory to pay the penalty for my sin and for your sin. May we respond to that today. Let's pray.